Okay, and welcome to the class. We're going to be talking about the Parshat Hukat. And as you can see from the little outline at the right here, Hukat has a lot, a lot to say. So what I'm wanting to do tonight is kind of like do an overview of the whole Parsha so we can try to take in as much as we can and then just say a little bit about it because every single one of the parts here is really important. And it's interesting to see how each one of the parts of the Parsha just flows into the other and it has something to say about all of it. You know, like it's it's a whole. Now... The very first thing that we look at in the Parsha, and if you want to go and uh, look it up, it's found in the Midbar, or Numbers 19. starts with Numbers 19, verse 1. Now this subject of the ashes of the red heifer is a subject that is very difficult to really understand but don't feel bad because we're told that this is one of the mysteries like the mystery that King Solomon his, himself never understood because you have a concept here where a clean person a pure person becomes impure from the preparation and then the the ashes are taken and the impure person is by those ashes those very ashes made pure and so it's something that is really not easy for us to get our minds around but why why a red heifer and why this whole ritual here wasn't just ashes it was taking a red heifer that was totally red did not have any hairs on it that were a different color no not just two black hairs or two white hairs would make it inappropriate it would not be acceptable so it had to be completely red and this was in itself a miracle it had to be a heifer who was of the age to give birth and it had to be a heifer that had never had a yoke on it, had never worked in the field. And the Sanhedrin would buy the heifer with the treasury of the temple, which was the half shekel that was used for counting the people. Each person was to donate a half shekel, and that's the way the people were counted. The people aren't supposed to be counted like one, two, three. They were counted with these half shekels. And so the items that would be purchased with these half shekels was literally to represent the whole people because it was the treasury of the counting of the people so the ritual was that the well let me just read a little bit of this I want us to get a, a feeling of it and God spoke to Moshe and Aaron saying this is a basic statute of the teaching that God has commanded speak to the sons of Israel that they take for you a completely red cow on which there is no blemish and on which no yoke has ever come and you shall give it to Eleazar the priest you shall take it out outside the camp 
and he shall slaughter it before his countenance. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood in his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of the appointed meeting seven times. And the cow shall thereafter be burned before his eyes. Its skin, its flesh, its blood, along with its dung, shall be burned. And the priest shall take a piece of cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet wood and he shall throw it into the burning of the cow. So it was very important. Each one of these, I, one, each one of these was um, representative of uh, part of nature. The scarlet wool was from the animal world. The cedar wood was from the trees, from the large plants, and the hyssop was from the small plants. So they would throw that on the um, on the cow, and of course the cow is from the animal world too, and it has this idea of redness, not the hyssop so much, but the cedar wood has a red tint to it, and the scarlet wool had the red tint to it. So before he would do this, he would hold each item up and say three times, is this a, cedar, th- is this a stick of cedar wood? And the people would say, yes, this is a stick of cedar wood. And he would say, is this a stick of cedar wood? And they would say, yes. And they would do this three times with each item that he was going to, to uh, put onto the cow. And then he rinses his garments and he shall bathe his flesh in water. And only thereafter may he come into the tent. However, the priest shall remain unclean until evening. Also, the one who burns it shall rinse his garments in water and bathe his flesh in water and shall remain unclean until evening. So here you have that the people who were involved in the preparation of this red cow would be pure in the beginning and then they would be made impure by the exposure to the process of burning this cow. And then they would get this water. Now it's really interesting about this water. The water had to be collected from the springs of Shiloh. And it was collected by um, boys under 13 years of age. I'm, I'm working from memory here. I remember reading about it. And they would, they would be on a board between two oxen. So the water never touches the ground. And this water is collected by these boys that have never been exposed to death. They're born in a special place, in like a cave, but the mothers are, are kept there. It's really, the whole thing is so interesting how all of it is protected from death. So it was like this cave, a uh, stone cave, and the mothers would go there to have these children, and the children would be born there, and they would live there, so that they were never exposed to the dead. And then these boys, the whole point of their life was to gather this water. Now it's really interesting that in Israel there was talk about reinstituting this with the Temple Institute. That they wanted to reinstitute this this system of these mothers raising these children in this very isolated place. And the government of Israel declares that was child abuse. I mean, you have to just laugh sometimes at the way that people perceive things and they'll put on it these things. Anyway, 
all of these precautions were taken so that the water was kept separate it was never exposed to the dead it was protected from this it was gathered by these boys who were raised in this very protected place and the cow the way it was um, the way it was prepared is also interesting now another thing that's not really said here is that Eleazar didn't quite understand fully he was given the job of burning it but it was Aaron who had to come and say the prayers say the words because he was the only one who could really understand it well enough to focus the proper attention toward this cow and toward you know so that the, everything was going to be done properly that it was blessed in such a way that it was going to be done properly so that it would have the ability to fulfill this now remember the other day I mean uh let me see when we studied about the sota it was in the healing class and I showed you the the water drops the crystals and how they were changed by different words set on them well you get the same kind of an idea here that there's this special and and there's a reason for it that there is this idea of this water it's similar to the waters of the sota and why because the red heifer itself is similar to the golden calf the golden calf remember that Moshe ground it and he put it in the water and people had to drink it and that is compared to the waters of the Sota that this was a punishment and that they were going to be it was going to be like a test whether they were guilty or whether they were innocent would be proven by what would happen to them after they would drink this water so this is kind of similar because and in fact there is a poem that's written a very famous poem that talks about the calf like it's the child of the red heifer so the red so the calf is this unruly child that caused all this problem made this big mess and the heifer has to come and clean it up and that's the connection like the heifer it has to be this female so that she is childbearing age so that she can make amends or she can bring the atonement for the damage that was done by the calf oh just a second oh. and so that's the whole idea about that and then the priest would take the waters and he would sprinkle the water on anyone who had been exposed to the dead now why is this so important where do we get this to and this is another connection with the red with the golden calf because before the golden calf before the sin of the golden calf when the people were standing at Sinai literally the angel of death had no power over the people of Israel none and so once they had worshipped the golden calf then the angel of death then had power again because they had sinned they had fallen it was like the whole thing with the with the forbidden fruit in the garden but once they took the fruit that they were forbidden to take that they fell all of creation fell down and death came into the world so 
part of this idea of the heifer cleaning up her child's mess is that she is the key ingredient for atoning for or purifying people from this taint of exposure to the dead. Now, understand something. This is another area where there is a difference between Israel and B'nai Noah in that Israel has this status where they can become ritually unclean. B'nai Noah, according to teachings of the rabbis, do not become ritually unclean in the same way. So this is something that really does apply to the people of Israel. And in fact, it's interesting to see that it's also called the waters of separation. Waters of separation that separate the, from the clean and the unclean. The person who has been exposed to the dead is sprinkled with it and then he becomes clean. And separation, another word for separation, interestingly enough, is, as you know, holiness, sanctification. So, it's also called waters of sanctification. It separates the people from death. So, as I said, I'm going to kind of like go through this a little, like skip through it, so we'll have an overview, and then I want everybody to come back tomorrow night for getting more specific about some things. And in the 22nd chapter, we read about what happened when Miriam passed away. Let me go and find exactly what the date was at that time. Miriam passed away in the 40th year of the wilderness journey. It was the 10th of Nisan, and that year was, let's see here, Aaron also passed away the same year. It was the 40th year after of the wilderness journey. Okay. So it was in Nisan when she passed away in the wilderness of Sin. She was 125 years of age. Uh, in the wilderness, the people received three gifts in the merit of the of Miriam, Aaron, and Moshe. In Miriam's merit was the well of the water that followed them on their journey through the desert. In the merit of Aaron were the clouds of glory that shielded the people. And in Moshe's merit was the man. Now, Moshe was the giver of the Torah and its teacher. So, 
man is like the, it was the daily gift, and it was like the, uh, is bread. And so Torah is like bread. You're supposed to have a daily learning of Torah. But also, when the people would eat the man, it would go, they would ingest it, and it aided in their study of Torah. So this was in the merit of Moshe. Now Aaron personified Avodah, which is the service to Hashem. And so his devotion to the sacrificial service brought the Shekhinah to Klal Israel. The clouds of glory were provided in his merit. They represented the Shekhinah and dwelt with the people of Israel. This was the presence of Hashem. And actually Shekhinah is the feminine side, the presence of Hashem as it is expressed through the feminine side. Miriam excelled in the third of the three fundamentals, kindliness. From her youth, she devoted herself to the people's welfare. You remember how she was a midwife. She assisted the, the uh, mothers in giving birth. And she also brought food to the poor. And she was always uplifting the people and encouraging the people that the redemption was close and not to lose heart. So kindliness, chesed, or mercy is represented through water. And that's interesting too when we think about these aspects of like the waters of the Sota and the waters of, of separation of the red heifer. That this is its judgment, yes. You could say it's judgment. But actually it's a mercy. That it, this cleansing aspect of it is mercy. And it shows how the judgment, this burning, this crushing, is mixed with the water, how it's mixed with mercy to bring balance to the people and bring them back to the place where they're supposed to be, back to the place in Hashem that they're meant to be. And so Miriam's kindness was demonstrated through this well that followed the people through the desert. And they just kind of got used to that it was always there. And suddenly, when she passed on, the water stopped flowing. And the reason that the water stopped flowing was so that the people would understand that it was in her merit that the water was there in the first place, so that they would connect it with her. Now, another thing that the rabbis say about how we read about Miriam's death, right after we read about the ashes of the red heifer, is so that we can understand another concept that just as the ashes of the red heifer brought atonement to the people purity from exposure to death that the death of the righteous can also be atonement for the whole community and in this case it was Miriam she was the first one of the three of these three children who passed on and she had really like blazed you can even say that with her prophetic gift from the time she was a small little girl and her encouragement and everything, she had basically blazed the way for her two brothers. I mean, we could literally say that, that here she was making the way there. So the water ceased. And Aaron and Moshe, of course, were sitting Shiva and they were grieving over the loss of their sister. And here came a crowd of people 
And Aaron said, oh, isn't this nice? They're coming to give their condolences. And Moshe said, Aaron, please, look at this crowd. This is an unruly mob. They're not coming with the leaders first. And indeed, exactly that was exactly true. So, the people came up there, and they were very angry because the waters had stopped flowing, and they were worried. What were they going to drink? What were they going to give to their children, their wives, their children, and their livestock? How were they going to live in this wilderness without water? Hashem, of course, understood. He understood their concerns. But they really, really went way too far. They always went a little bit too far. And here they went too far. And they started attacking Moshe again. And they said, why did you bring us from Mitzrayim? Why did you bring us to this evil place? You promised to bring us into the holy land, into the land of flowing with milk and honey, and here we are again with no water to drink. How could you do this to us? And Moshe, of course, has been long suffering. It's been forty years. He's been long suffering all this time, but right now he is a human being, and he's grieving his sister. So. Hashem told Moshe and Aaron, Moshe and Aaron both, to go to the rock and to sanctify him before. In fact, it says Al. Sanctify his name at the rock or before the rock or, you know. See, a lot of times what we see is speak to the rock but in Hebrew it doesn't say it uses a word uses the word out so we can understand from that that there is a double meaning it says Hashem is speaking to Moshe and he says ve dibartim al ha sela dibartim means speak to them Speak to the people, Dibartim, speak to them. Al Ha Selah. And he doesn't use the word like uh, Eben or the word Zur. He uses the word Selah, which is an interesting word too. But he uses the word Al, which could mean to or it could mean about. So. What he could be saying to them, and this is where we kind of really need the Hebrew to see that there is a double meaning here that Hashem is giving here, that he could be saying, speak to the people, speak about the rock, or he could be saying, speak to the rock. We always interpret that in English as being, speak to the rock, before their eyes. But, what if we said, speak about the rock, and what would we be saying then? In fact, what we would be saying then is that Hashem is telling him to go with the people before this rock where the water flowed out and teach them Torah. To teach them a Torah and by the merit of their learning Torah that the waters would flow out because another symbol of of Torah is water. 
So he says, take the staff, assemble the community, you and your brother Aaron, and speak to, or about, the rock before their eyes, that it may give forth its water. Then you will bring forth water to them from out of the rock, and you will give the community and their animals to drink. Now when we read the straight Torah, the written Torah, we go straight from that to Moshe took the staff that had been laid down before God as he commanded him. And Moshe assembled the community before the rock and he said, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And you notice how it says, out of this rock? And so there's a midrash that the people didn't just stop right there. They were needling him. They were saying, well, we don't want you to bring forth water out of any rock that you choose. You bring forth water out of a rock that we choose. So here are all these shouts. How about this rock? How about this rock? And so Moshe is, has had it. He is furious. And so he says, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And he hits it. Instead of doing what Hashem said, and speaking about the rock even if he was speaking about that very rock and talking about how it had given forth water in the merit of Miriam even if he was saying you know look at the miracle that Hashem did for us all these years in the wilderness and glorified Hashem he would be speaking about that literal rock and he would be speaking about the rock Hashem al Hasela or to the rock and doing both of it at the same time and speaking words of Torah to these people who had heads like rocks because they were really hard-headed and so a lot of times people will say and the rabbis say it's really difficult for us to know exactly what Moshe's sin is People like to jump on this. He struck the rock when God said to speak to it. But when you start looking at that verse, it says, Al-Hasela, you see that there is a meaning in there where you could see a little bit more depth of what could really be going on. Then when you add to that the Midrash, remember, remember something else. That Miriam had been stricken with leprosy why? Because she spoke against Moshe. And so here, Moshe is doing what? He is speaking against the people. He's calling them rebels. And the prophets always got into trouble when they got a little bit too zealous and too angry at the people. Even though they might have deserved every word of it. it was a, it's a real slippery slope. It's a real dicey area. So Moshe lost his temper, which was something that he really, that was one of his weak parts as a human being. And he shouted at them. He degraded them. And when he raised his hand and struck this rock with his staff twice, water came forth. And the community and their animals drank. But Midrash says something else too that the water came gushing out of the rock and it drowned the rebels. The ones who had really been taunting him were drowned by the water. 
Then Hashem said to Moshe and Aaron, Because you did not hold fast to me, and here you get the hint about Al-Hasela, to sanctify me before the eyes of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this community into the land that I have given them. Now, you think about that, and you think, Wow! Something's going on here. It's not what meets the eye. What is going on here? There is something. Hashem was looking for a reason, a pretext. Because this is a little bitty thing compared to other stuff. I mean, it's almost like a nothing. But he wanted a reason why Moshe and Aaron both would be buried on the east side of the Jordan with the people who died in the wilderness with the people who died over those 40 years and we see this in Midrash later when Moshe is praying to go across the river and Hashem says look how would it be if you bury a whole generation that you brought out of Egypt and you go across the river how would that be and besides in your merit if you were buried here and Aaron too if you're buried here it will be the merit of you that they will be able to rise in the resurrection during the time of Mashiach and you will lead them across the river then so here is the time and it's interesting too when you think about water and connection with mercy that even that even that that the punishment even of that Moshe and Aaron are going to have to die on the east side of the Jordan and stay there on the east side of the Jordan and never be able to go into the land that they dreamed of that even that is a mercy on the people that they led all those years and so it's connected to this water to the flow of the water to the stopping of the flow of the water and then to it starting again it's connected to that it's really interesting when you look at that but Moshe wasn't satisfied with this. I mean, he couldn't, he just couldn't bear that. And he says, but what about Aaron? I mean, he didn't do anything. I did it. But Hashem was adamant. No, he can't. He has to, he has to die here. And later we see that when um, Moshe, and the next thing is, that uh, Aaron is going to die on the east side of the Jordan and Moshe asks Hashem well then why couldn't Aaron just stay alive on the east side of the Jordan why does he have to die why couldn't he just stay here I mean Aaron's not young he's, he's over 120 himself and Hashem says to Moshe if Aaron does not pass away if he stays alive the people of Israel cannot cross the river they cannot go into the land he has to pass on first and like we said about Miriam Miriam's death was another it was an atonement it was another aspect to atonement for the people to be able to go on for the whole community and most certainly then Aaron death would be as well 
So I kind of skipped over Edom refused to let Israel cross its territory. But I'm going ahead and I'm going to talk about um, Aaron's passing on. So Hashem told Moshe that Aaron was going to pass on and he had to tell Aaron. And it was very difficult for him to tell Aaron that the time had come. So he was going to take him up to Mount Hor where it's called Har no, yeah Har Hor Ha Har it's real hard to say Hor Ha Har the mountain of Hor and what it looks like is a little mountain on top of a big mountain and this was going to be the place where Aaron would be gathered so Moshe took Aaron and Eleazar and he went up on this mountain and um, so he had to take the clothes the clothes of the high priest from Aaron and put it on Eleazar and he didn't know how in the world was he going to do this because he couldn't just strip Aaron bare and then put the clothes over on Eleazar and they had to be put on the clothing had to be put on in order so Hashem said to Aaron to Moshe you you do your part and I'll do my part so he took the clothes from Aaron and each time he took off one of the garments it was like a there was a spiritual garment in its place covering him and then Aaron was told to lie down and he passed on with the what is called the divine kiss where his soul just leaped up to join with the Shekinah. Now let's see. I'm going to where list. There is a list of the people who who passed on like this and were told with Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam that these people were people who over whom the angel of death had no power. And so they had to pass away in this manner that Hashem just took them that the Shekhinah came and their soul just united with the Shekhinah and they went up and it's called the divine kiss the people of Israel really loved Aaron and they were not going to accept that he was gone so Moshe and Eliezer came down from the mountain and the people like where is Aaron what did you do to him so Moshe told them that he had passed away, that he had been buried on Mount Hor, on Mount Hor, and the people got very, very upset, and they said, "You probably, he probably did some small little thing that made you mad, and you had him killed." I mean, they really were angry at Moshe, and they were accusing him of this because. They saw Moshe as the harsh one. They saw Aaron as the 
peacemaker, as loving, as always bringing people together. And they love Aaron like this. They love Moshe too. Don't get me wrong. They also they grieved terribly when Moshe passed away. But they couldn't accept that Aaron had passed on, that Aaron was no longer going to be with them. So Hashem had them see the coffin of Aaron floating and they saw that he was gone and they grieved for him they grieved for him and wept for 30 days because they had had a breach in their faith in their, and they had had doubt a lot of things had been happening they had had this whole thing with the rock and the water and then Aaron and then a dome would not let them pass through their territory so they had to go even a further way around and then Aaron passed away and so they were they were really heart sick they were sick in their souls they were really heart sick and in that state of that of doubt it was a state of doubt they were vulnerable and actually when you look at the word for Amalek it has the same gematria as the word Suffolk which means doubt so the people were in a state of doubt and we saw that right after they came out of Egypt that when there was this doubt about Hashem that they were vulnerable and who came rushing into that gap it was always Amalek so here came Amalek again and they decided they were going to play a trick on the people. They were going to dress up as though they were um, Canaanites and then they thought they would have power over the people because they would be praying against the Canaanites, they'd be praying against the wrong country but instead the people were a little bit smarter than that and they prayed whatever this nation is you know, give us victory against them. But the idea, and we saw this when the the spies came with this report and they mentioned the Amalek, that every time Amalek came up, that the people just it's like they sunk. They were like oh they were they were, the doubt that they felt in the beginning just deepened. And they were almost panic stricken. And so in the state of all of this they said to Moshe, why? They spoke against Hashem. They've had all these things happen. They say, why have you brought us up from Mitzrayim to die in the wilderness? For we have no bread and no water, and our soul is sick of this unsubstantial nourishment. So now they've spoken against Hashem, and they've spoken against the man, which is basically similar to speaking against the Torah this very essence of sustenance the, the sustenance that's keeping them going and making it possible for them to not just have physical stamina but also to have spiritual stamina to be able to learn Torah on a higher level and they were attacking this so because they were speaking venomous words Hashem sent venomous snakes against the people snakes scorpions and Midrash says scorpions and wild dogs so 
interestingly, this happens right after Aaron's passing. And remember when we were talking about that Aaron, in Aaron's merit was the, the clouds of glory? Well, these snakes and scorpions and so on have always been there. But because of the clouds of glory, the people were protected from them. And now, with Aaron being gone, and the people's doubt rising up, the clouds of glory aren't protecting them. And so the snakes that have always been there come in and they start biting the people. And the people came to Moshe and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against God and against you. Pray to God that he will turn away the snakes from us. And Moshe prayed for the people. And God said to Moshe, Make yourself a venomous snake and place it upon a tall pole and it shall come to pass that anyone who is bitten, let him look upon it and he will live. Moshe made a copper snake and placed it on a tall pole and it came to pass that if a snake had bitten a man and he would look upon the copper snake, he would live. The children of Israel journeyed on and camped in a boat. So this snake that he made the Hebrew word for for serpent is nachash, and the word for copper is nocheshet. So it was it was two things. First of all, that it was made to look similar to the skin of the snake. It was coppery. But second of all, that the word for copper is so similar to the word for serpent. No, um, Nachash and Nocheshet that there were these two reasons that, that Moshe chose copper and we're going to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow night Bizrat Hashem but interestingly that this is the, the symbol that we have in medical science for healing so like I said we're going to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow night so it came up And they were traveling. They had to travel around Edom. And they had to travel around Moab. And they came upon Sihon. And Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his territory. Sihon was a giant. Sihon and Og were brothers. And they were giants. They were supposed to have been giants from pre-flood days. That they were these giants. Remember in the sixth chapter of Genesis where it talks about the sons of men I mean the uh, sons of God and the daughters of men and that there were great giants in the land well we have some of these giants mentioned in the Torah and Sihon and Og are supposed to be giants that had lived before the flood and so Moshe was able to defeat Sihon without really without a whole lot of problems Og was another another story and Moshe was actually worried about his battling with Og not because he was too big not because he was too strong not because of any of these things not because he was afraid of his army but because of something else he knew that Og had done one tremendous mitzvah 
And that mitzvah was that he had gone to Abraham and warned him about Lot being captured by, remember the, the war between the five kings and the three kings, the war between the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and these other kings that came, and Lot was captured. And so Og sent word to Abraham that his nephew was captured. Now, Moshe thought, well, he did a mitzvah, and so maybe I won't have the merit to defeat him. He really was very concerned about that. So Hashem said, don't worry about it. Because Og did this for a selfish reason. He did. He had an ulterior motive. He was wanting Avraham to die in battle, and then he would take Sarah as his own wife. That was his plan. So you can see that he really did not have a pure motive at all. Now, interestingly, that we can see that Og was still alive in the time of Moshe, and he had lived before the flood. And that's a whole other story about how he hung on to the ark and stuff. Now, the people who were born before the flood had particularly long lives. After the flood, the days of man, the lives of mankind, were cut shorter. We have to understand this. We read about these very, 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 very long lives, and it's pre-flood. And so, Og is one of these pre from the pre-flood generation. And he's one of these giants. So, you really get the flavor with the Midrash about this battle with Og. So, I'm going to share this with you. So, B'nai Israel were coming to confront this very frightening enemy, this huge giant. They had already defeated Sicho, but Og was the last one, the last remaining giant from the pre-flood giant. He was tremendous, and he was queer-looking and ugly. Our sages relate that he consumed for his meal a thousand oxen and drank a thousand jugs of water and that he built sixty cities, the least fortified of which was sixty mil high. His strength was reputed to be unsurpassed, except by one of his sons, who was even mightier than he. When Moshe heard that Og was ready to wage war, he was afraid. Our great teacher Moshe did not fear Og's physical strength. Moshe, more than anyone else, knew that before the Almighty, all the nations are considered nothing. Moshe had therefore repeatedly warned the Jews not to be afraid of their enemies and reproved them when they confessed fear of the inhabitants of Canaan after the spies' report. So what did he fear? He suspected that the Almighty might assist Og. He reasoned, I am 120 years old, while this man is over 500 the Almighty might have granted him long life for a good reason. Og informed our forefather Avraham that his nephew was taken captive. Perhaps the merit of this mitzvah protects him. Moreover, 
Moshe feared that B'nai Israel might have committed a sin in the war against the Amorim, such as having taken of their spoils. Unless the camp is pure of sin, Hashem would not assist the Jewish people further. Hashem assured Moshe, Do not be afraid. I have subdued Og's protecting angel and given Og into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sichon, the king of the Amorim. I did indeed reward him with long life for telling Avraham of Lot's captivity. Now, however, let me reveal to you the motives that prompted him to perform the mitzvah. They were evil. Attracted by Sarah's beauty, he wished to draw Avraham into battle, hoping that Avraham would fall and he would be able to take Sarah. He would be punished for his evil thoughts by falling into your hands. You personally shall slay him. Moshe commanded B'nai Israel to camp overnight near the city Adri, where Og lived, and ready themselves for a battle on the next day. Early in the morning, Moshe walked toward the wall that surrounded the city. It seemed to him much higher than it had been on the previous day. In reality, the giant, Og, was sitting on top of the wall, his feet dangling to the ground. What is this? wondered Moshe. Have they erected an additional wall on top of the old one during the night? No, Moshe, Hashem informed him. You see Og himself. You shall overcome him. He uprooted a tremendous rock, in fact, an entire mountain, saying, This rock is three parsoot long, equal to the area of the entire Israelite camp. I shall hurl it onto their camp and destroy all the Jews at once. Hashem foiled Og's plan by causing armies of ants to crawl upon the rock and gnaw, it, gnaw at it until it became perforated. While Og attempted to hurl it at the Jews like a tremendous bomb, it crumbled in his uplifted hand and fell onto his neck and shoulders. As Og tried to remove it, it became firmly stuck to his neck. While Moshe, who was ten amot long, seized an axe ten amot long, he leaped ten amot into the air, reaching Og's heel, which he smashed with the axe. The giant fell in the direction opposite the camp, so that the rock should not cause any harm, and he died. Thereafter, the Jews killed Og's sons, defeated the enemy's army and took possession of the territory of Bashan. So this is a really kind of an interesting uh, midrash of how the people, how the giants were destroyed. Now, there's, a, there's another take on this midrash that I want to share with you. Og knew that the Jews' camp was three parsaot long, and that the Jews derived their strength from the merit of their three forefathers. However, Og uprooted the mountain. He claimed that the merit of the mountain Avraham, the forefathers, or termed mountain, would assist him because he had performed the mitzvah of helping Avraham. The grasshoppers, it's another version of the ants, namely the Jews, crumbled the rock. The Jews are symbolized by grasshoppers, which make a chirping sound to hint at their special power of prayer. 
Moshe was able to overcome Og with his merit and his tefillah. Figuratively described as his height, the ten amot is his tefillah, his prayers. In the merit of the people, which is described as his axe that is ten amot long. And in the merit of the forefathers, described as leaping, leaping ten amot in the, in the air, because he had to spring back hundreds of years. Moshe hit Og in the heel. He spiritually overcame the merit of Og who ran with his heels to bring the news to Abraham. Nevertheless, there is no doubt that Og actually attempted to cast tremendous rocks at the Jews and that God prevented him for one must recite a special blessing upon seeing these gigantic rocks. Now, there was not a shira written about this defeat of Sihon and Og. So, Davi Hamelis, the King David, wrote about it in Psalm 136 and in Psalm 1822. And it says like this, Give thanks to Hashem, for He is good, for His kindness endures forever. He slew mighty kings, for His kindness endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorim, for his kindness endures forever. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his kindness endures forever. And gave the land for a heritage, for his kindness endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his kindness endures forever. So we always remember the battle of defeating the giant as we say to Helaman. And we say the prayers here in memory of the defeat of these giants, the defeat of this actually a giant thing, the the remnant from before the flood that reminds us of the evils. And it was at the time when we you can put that together with the wickedness or the iniquity of the Amorites was full because Sihon was the king of the Amorites and then Og was his brother. So, does anybody have something you would like to comment or you would like to ask about? left for a while was Og from before the flood? Yes, Og was from before the flood. We have that midrash about him hanging on the side of the ark and Noah fed him through the ark uh, through the window and Tom and Karen say, Miriam you've taught things tonight I have never heard. Excellent insight and excellent class. Thank you for that and I hope that you'll join us for our, our class tomorrow night because we're going to go into some other areas of the Parsha that have to do with healing. I want to talk about the well of Miriam a little bit more and 
Maybe we're going to get into the copper serpent, but he definitely wanted us to talk about the well of Miriam. Okay. Anything else? Well, then I thank you for joining the class tonight, and I look forward to your joining me tomorrow night where we're going to go into this a little bit deeper and we're going to unfold it a little bit more and see what we can find. Thank you. All of uh, everybody. Looking forward to seeing everybody.